I'm Nora McNerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. And it's also basically Valentine's Day. All you people with hearts and feelings, this one's for you. This is a special V-Day episode designed to listen with somebody you love and then just really appreciate each other as best you can. Okay, let's do this. Sorry, I've been watching a lot of uh, Fast and the Furious. Let's do this. Okay. Sometimes things just work out perfectly. It can be in small ways, like when you're driving to work and you hit all of the green lights. And even though you left eight minutes later than you should have, you still make it to work on time. And sometimes things can work out perfectly in bigger ways, like your favorite friends and their partners are all available for a week-long vacation together, which never happens. All the different elements just fall together in perfect sync, and something amazing happens. We all went home and we're like, man, that was just like the best trip of our lives. Like we went to three different national parks. We went skiing on like three different ski resorts. Uh, We had car adventures where one of our cars broke down and we were on the side of the road together, packed in like sardines. So it was just like everything worked out and we were all able to be there and just like literally have the time of our lives all together. Those moments, the big ones and the little ones where everything just works out, they don't always happen. So when they do, they stand out. Megan and Clark had a good life with a lot of perfect moments. They had fallen in love in college or Clark fell first and Megan took a little longer. They were both pursuing their dreams of being physicians at their alma mater, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Yay, Badgers. And they had done it. Clark was working in radiology, focusing on neurology, which, as a brain cancer widow, I gotta say, I highly appreciate. Let's give Clark a hand for that. Megan was working in the ER, which is also cool, because I've been there too. I approve of both of these medical pursuits. And Megan loved her job in the ER, and things were just exactly as they should have been when Megan and Clark got back from that trip. Walking through the door, it was so, it was, it felt like life was perfect because we had these amazing friends and our dog greeted us, um, as she always did, with overexcitement. You know, it's weird to be like, oh, my life was perfect. But I think in that moment after that trip, it just felt like everything was, was working out. The only thing that had not worked out on that trip is that Megan caught a bug on the last day. Something that she called a GI bug because she is a physician and a professional, I did need to ask some clarifying questions, like, were you pooping your pants and puking? Yes. So, there you have it. That's what a GI bug really means. Next time a doctor says GI bug, just know what you're in for, okay? It takes Megan a day or two to get over this thing, and then she's back at work, in the ER, doing what she does. And what she does in the ER is take care of people who need emergency help because they have a cold, me, 
And she takes care of people who need emergency help because they had their thumb chopped off or their wife's shih tzu bit them and it got infected, but the dog only bit them because they cornered her in a garage and she's a rescue and you shouldn't do that, Matthew. Anyway, Megan loves this job. We came back on a, it must have been a Sunday, um, and then I was majorly sick, and then like Monday was my worst day, and then I would say Tuesday was a recovery day, and Wednesday I was totally fine. Clark got sick on Thursday night, um, just started feeling that achy feeling again, and I knew, I was like, oh, you have what I had. Um, I was like, don't be surprised if you start getting some GI symptoms. We all know what that means. So... Clark's not feeling great on Friday, but he wasn't about to miss work on Saturday, where he'd be on call. For a radiologist, it actually means that they're in the hospital and they're reading films and CT scans and MRIs. For a long time, 14 hours, 16 hours, this is not like you and me going to work, okay? And Clark was sick, but he was not the kind of person to call in. Because he was always the guy who was like, oh, you have to be really sick to not go into work, you know, because you're making somebody else pick up your slack. Like, it's a weird thing with physicians. Like, physicians always go to work even if we're really sick. We do not practice what we preach. Now, when it comes to sick people, I'm not always, like, the most patient. And I was very sweet to my first husband, Aaron, when he had cancer because it was stage four brain cancer and that had been proven medically. But if my kids or my current husband claims to be sick, look, I'm going to need to see blood, vomit, or a temperature of 150 degrees, some combo thereof, or you, you're going to school or work. Megan and Clark are kind of the same way, which is reassuring to me, only they're medical professionals. When one doctor gets sick, and his wife is also a doctor, their standards for suffering are pretty high. They are McInerney level. So Megan did what I would have done in that situation. She gave Clark fluids. She told him to rest. And she said, oh, I'm sorry, honey. I hope you feel better soon. And then she sent him to work. So I had been kind of texting him throughout the day, like, hey, do you need anything? You know, how are you feeling? And, like, he just kept saying, like, oh, I just feel, I just feel awful. This is the worst day ever. Which Clark was always kind of dramatic, especially when it came to doing, so he, he was a radiology resident, but all, all he really wanted to do was neuroradiology, which means, like, looking at the brain. Um, he didn't really care about the rest of the body. Like, he was really good at it, but he didn't care about it. So the last thing he wanted to do was be there on a weekend when he didn't feel good reading abdominal CTs. Um, Broken arms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he's he truthfully hated all that stuff. So it wasn't unusual for him to be dramatic and like, this sucks, this is the worst day ever. Like, those were common texts from him. Like, the only thing that haunts me, like truly haunts me from that day is that um, – one of my last text messages to him was like, you know, do you need anything? Like, do you want me to bring you anything? And his reply was a gun. That was literally his last text message to me ever in his entire life was, what can I bring you? A gun. Megan does not bring him a gun. Clark finishes his shift early, 12 hours instead of the 16 or 14. And he comes home and... He's like, I feel so crappy. 
can we please just go into the emergency department? And I just feel like I'm dehydrated. Can we just get fluids? And I was like, yeah, if that's what you feel like you need, like, we'll go in. So I'm an emergency physician, right? And so I see bad stuff all the time, but I more commonly see not bad stuff. Like, I see colds all the time, and I'm like, you know, why why are you in the emergency department? What do you want me to do? It just has to run its course. But it's never like we're we're bashing those patients who don't necessarily need to be there. But the last thing you want to do as a physician is not be able to self-triage to when you need to go in or not. In other words, if Clark wants to go to the ER, he must feel real bad. Clark and Megan go right back to the hospital, into the ER where Megan works, to be seen by her colleagues. And those colleagues come to the same conclusion Megan and Clark had come to. Clark has a bug, he's dehydrated, he needs fluids. So we were like, sure, we'll give him some fluids, we'll maybe give him something to settle his stomach down, um, and we'll just see how things go. Clark got three liters of fluids, which... Megan calls a good amount, and I trust her. And the two of them head back home around 3 in the morning, exhausted. He couldn't fall asleep. He's like, I just still feel so anxious. Like, So we, we listened to um, Winston Marsalis, uh, the Pandora station, which was like his station that he would study to or like read articles. It was like his soothing, calming station. It's a jazz. It's a jazz artist. So we listened to that for a while and sat on the couch at home. Megan's bug had run its course in about 48 hours, which means Clark should feel better when he wakes up on Sunday. But uh, he still feels pretty crappy. It just seemed like it was getting slightly worse throughout the day. But in the eyes of a physician, there were no red flags. Like later in the day, he was like, it just feels like something's eating my my muscles. He's like, I don't, they're just so achy. Like, I don't get, he's like, could that be happening? And I was like, I don't know. It doesn't really make sense. Like, so I was folding laundry and I was like, are you sure you don't want to go back in? Like, if you're feeling this bad, we should go back in. He's like... I'm going to go upstairs. I'm going to try to sleep again one more time. And then, like, if I don't feel better, we'll go. I was like, well, I work at 7 in the morning tomorrow. So, like, if we're going to go, we we should go because I don't want to come home at 3 in the morning and then have to do a shift at 7. And he was like, he's like, no, it's okay. Like, I think I can go upstairs and fall asleep. And I was like, okay. It's about 9 p.m. Megan turns out all the lights. She settles into the couch with the dog and falls asleep. About an hour later, Megan wakes up to Clark's voice from upstairs. He wasn't in a panic. He was just calling my name. And so I went upstairs uh, into our bedroom, and he was in there kind of like with one hand against the dresser, putting on his scrub pants. The lighting in the room wasn't the best, but I remember looking at him and being like, oh, you do look really pale, babe. Like, yeah, we should definitely go. He walked out to the car. We got in the car and we started driving to the ER. And and this is so, this is a drive that I take every day, but I, I actually remember it so clearly. And I remember turning down one of the roads 
Um, and he, he turned to me and he said, I feel like my vision is starting to be weird. Like I, he's like, I just feel so weak. I, you're going to need to grab a wheelchair for me. And this is when like, I, everything just started to get really serious. And so he got himself into the wheelchair and the tech was like, I'll take him in. So then I, I just went and parked my car which again, like, I don't know why I remember it so specifically. I think it was because I parked in the patient parking spot, which I'm not allowed to do normally, but I was like, well, I guess I'm a patient this time. So parked in the patient parking ramp and then went inside. Clark is in room six. Megan's been in here countless times. She works here. But she's never been here as anything but a doctor. This time... She walks in as a patient. And uh, they, uh, he, that's like when I saw him in that fluorescent light for the first time. Sorry. And he was so pale. And his lips were blue-tinged, and they were just, like, really chapped and dry, and he he looked so sick. And I was like, God, he didn't look like that even 30 minutes ago. Like, like I was, like, so taken aback by how different my husband looked. We are going to take a little break here. And when we come back, we'll be back in room number six in the emergency room with Megan and Clark. Ladies and gentlemen, at this point in time, we're just going to take a break and make a few quick phone calls. I have to call some members of the Terrible Club. Get out your flip phones. This is Nisha. Hi, Nisha. This is Nora McInerney calling. Hi, how are you? Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm just calling to say hi. And (laughs) thank you for being in the Terrible Club. Oh, my gosh. It's the best decision I've ever made. (laughs) I just kept thinking to myself that I really would like to be in a group setting like that, have, like, a safe place to go, especially on social media. Every single person in that group is the best person I've ever met in my entire life somehow every single one of them they all immediately respond to posts and give the best advice and are just so kind and caring and and validating I just never feel reluctant to share anything with them Uh, well thank you so much honestly thank you one for taking this call two being a terrible club member three listening to our show four being a wonderful person so I'm glad I got to meet you I'll see you I'll see you in the club talk to you thanks (laughs) bye If you're interested in joining the Terrible Club, you do not have to consent to receiving phone calls from me. That is not a part of membership, but you can join with a donation of $5 a month or more at ttfa.org slash donate. And we're back. 
back in room six in the emergency room where Megan works. It's clear now that something is really wrong with Clark, really, really wrong. The room fills with people, faculty doctors, resident doctors, nurses. Each one of them is Megan's colleague, someone she works with regularly. I remember he had mumbled something. He was trying to say something. And I remember going up to him and like, what did you say, babe? And um, he said it again. I thought he told me that he was thirsty. And I was like, oh, it's okay, babe. Like, we'll get you some water in a little bit. Which, you know, whatever he said there was his last words to me. The capable, take-charge Megan, who saves lives, is gone. And a different Megan takes her place. I was a wife. I was not the physician. I was... Everything was happening so quickly, and I was... I wasn't understanding it like a physician understood it. I felt confused and scared, and um, I was not able to contribute in any useful sense towards the medical team. And... And all I can say is, like, it didn't feel like I was really there. It felt like I was somehow completely separated from the process. Um, And it was a very helpless feeling. Megan just watches. She watches as Clark's breathing slows down and as her colleagues bag him and begin breathing for him. My friend, who was holding me, said that he remembers me like shivering, just like there just was like a big shiver that ran through my body at that moment because when a patient does that, it's like a sign that the brain isn't getting enough oxygen and it can't produce its own drive to to breathe anymore. And so it's a it's a really bad sign. But they get in a breathing tube and Clark stabilizes and the team starts planning to move him into intensive care. I sort of started picturing my life for the next few days, like sitting in the ICU with him. We know what's going on. He's on all the right medications now. He's getting antibiotics. He's on pressors. He's stabilized. I was standing like right inside the doorway, kind of in the corner of the room. And I look up at the monitor. He's in some weird heart rhythm. And um, is this unusual? Yeah. So this is like a big red flag. Yeah, this is really bad. And that rhythm quickly deteriorated, and he went pulseless. He lost his pulse, and they had to start doing CPR on him. And I remember just standing there watching them do CPR on my husband, which is, I mean, I see that all the time, right? Like, I run codes all the time. This is different. This is Clark. Minutes pass, and Megan watches as they try medications to jumpstart his heart. More minutes. They're pounding on Clark's chest, trying to get him going. After a half hour, nothing has changed. One of Megan's colleagues approaches her. (sighs) And, uh... He came up to me and, and said, I don't know what else we can do, Megan. 
And at that time, I wasn't, I wasn't ready to give up because I, I still felt so confused about how we had gotten to this point. And I remember telling him, no, you're not stopping yet. And he said, okay, we will keep doing everything we can. And so I had always been sort of standing in the corner of the room because that's where, that's where the family is supposed to stand. And uh, I, I hadn't really entered the room deep enough to actually really see Clark anymore. Um, and so I went deeper into the room and kind of went up by the head of his bed. And uh, he was just totally blue, which was a shock because normally when you're doing CPR, you're still moving the blood around enough that um, that their skin still st stays like a pretty normal color and it'll still be slightly warm. But he he looked so dead. It was at that moment that I... I knew it was over. And so his hospital gown had been pushed up around his neck so that they could do compressions on his chest. And I remember grabbing the gown and throwing it over his body and then I I threw myself on top of him and yelled just stop stop And I, I don't know how long I just sat there. <sighs> Laying over the top of him. And I just kept saying, I'm sorry. Because <sighs> in that moment, I felt so guilty. <sighs> For how things transpired and how two physicians living in a home couldn't recognize septic shock and how neither of us were smart enough to to take him in sooner and I, I just yelled over and over again I'm so sorry I love you I'm so sorry And so I eventually just kind of climbed in bed with him and just laid there with him. And uh, I remember putting my head on his chest like I normally would. And he always had this very palpable heartbeat that was always sort of irregular. <laughs> And I remember how empty his chest was and how there, I couldn't feel his heartbeat anymore. And it was just such a 
such a strange feeling of emptiness. It's been a week, just a week, since Megan and Clark returned from the perfect vacation, back to their perfect lives and the jobs that they loved. And now, Megan is holding Clark's body, not just in the ER, but in her ER. Megan is in the most traumatic moment of her life, and she's also at work with all of her coworkers. Any lines between her personal and professional lives are gone, destroyed, and not in a Brené Brown, bring your whole self to work kind of way. This is just like all of her worlds colliding and exploding all at once. I remember um, seeing all the faces of the people I work with every day. And being people who work in the emergency department, we're, we're sort of this hard-knock crew, right? Like, we see the worst of the worst. The, the emergency department doesn't stop. But it, it felt like in that moment that it had. There were so many people just standing around with just clueless looks on their face. You know, I'm usually the calm voice in the room that's, you know, when a patient's really sick, like, I'm the one who's calmly, you know, giving orders and instructions and, you know, kind of guiding the room through this chaotic mess. And now I'm, I'm the one who sort of created this horrific scene. But even the most horrific scenes have to end. So eventually... It's time for Megan to go home. And I remember as I was, like, putting on my coat to leave, one of the charge nurses came up to me and said, is there anything of his that you want? Like, do you want his wedding ring? And I went back into the room and... uh took off his wedding ring and I don't know what made me say it or what what even like triggered me to remember to say something like this but I remember as I took off his wedding ring I said till death do us part and then I kissed his hand Where do you go when everything has fallen apart? Your parents' house. So that's where Megan goes. She goes back to her parents' house. And as shocking as this weekend has been for Megan, her husband was sick on Friday, at work on Saturday, and dead on Sunday. It's baffling to her parents. I mean, we don't usually tell our parents or our family when our partner has just a run-of-the-mill virus, do we? So... They have no idea what's happened, and Megan doesn't really either, but she tries to catch them up as best she can. So I think I was starting to replay the night for them, 
And then eventually the room, the room went silent and, uh, but I, I couldn't handle the silence. And so I had my phone in my hand and I was like, I'm going to put some Pandora on because that's what you do in these situations. It's the playlist titled, Your Husband Just Died Suddenly and Tragically (laughs) in the ER you work in. (laughs) It's really niche. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, right? I mean, it's like top of everyone's uh, uh, playlist right there. So it's, yeah, clearly everyone wants to listen to it. It's not depressing at all. So I I opened Pandora and hit play and... uh, his Winston Marsalis playlist came on because that's what we had listened to the night before when we had come home from the emergency department. And uh, the song that came on was titled Goodbye. And I'll never forget like how... It just felt like in that moment that was him. Because he, he was my DJ. As we, when we had first started dating, he gave me an iPod because that's that was a cool thing back then to have an iPod. And uh, what he engraved on the back of my iPod was "Forever Your DJ." Megan's job comes with plenty of tragedy. She chose a career where she often sees people on the worst days of their lives or even on the last day of their lives. And Clark's not the first patient she's seen die. I've still had plenty of cases that I'll, I will never forget. I still remember the patients, every detail, because they died in my care. And, and those patients haunt you. You know, I mean, you learn from them, but they still they still haunt you. About a month after Clark dies, when the funeral is over, one of Megan's first concerns is for her colleagues. Are they haunted by Clark's death the way she was haunted by some of her patients? It's only been a matter of weeks since Clark died, and Megan starts a series of conversations with people who treated Clark over those last two days of his life. She starts with a friend, the doctor, who had seen Clark the night before he died, who had given him fluids but hadn't diagnosed what would kill him, who was there in the room when Clark died. I knew he was blaming himself because that's what I would have done. And if anything, like, I, I felt awful that that I put him in that position. And so I just, I wanted him to know that from 
for me, I didn't have ill feelings. I thought he did everything he should have that night. Megan repeated this conversation with a lot of her colleagues who were there, with doctors, nurses, the residents that she supervises who were working on saving her husband, even her boss. Over and over, she let them know that she doesn't want them to feel guilty. She doesn't want them to hold on to this and to start questioning their own abilities. They all just did the best they could. There was no way of guessing that what happened to Clark was happening. They literally didn't have a meaningful diagnosis until after he died. Because sometimes things work out perfectly in a bad way. Clark had a perfect combination of terrible things that made it impossible for him to survive. Obviously, in hindsight, he, he did have the same virus that I had. Unfortunately, what happened was um, that virus um, sort of ran its course, and in so it knocked out his immune system, which can happen, right? Like, it happens, and then my guess is that he picked up this bacterial infection, which is a, it's a common bacterial infection. It causes strep throat um, while he was at work, and uh, he basically went into septic shock, He had a very rare form of septic shock, which is called toxic shock syndrome, which is when the bacteria not only are doing their normal, awful bacterial stuff, but they're also producing these toxins, which cause even more harm to the body. Everything was just set up for him to die, like the virus and then contracting this rare, like super bacteria, like it, like You know, I wanted to make sure that everybody in that room just knew that I felt that they did everything they could and that he was just too sick when I brought him in. Who was giving you that reassurance? Did you give it to yourself? (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so, I mean, I still struggle with that. I do feel an incredible amount of guilt that I didn't recognize it sooner. And so I, I've never blamed anyone who took care of him. I've only been thankful for the fact that they were there that night, both nights, because I've mainly blamed myself for it. I know that I'll I'll never be able to not have that feeling. But I I do believe that I'm a good physician and I know that I take good care of my patients and that this doesn't define me in that way. Now, just to recap this, Megan feels responsible for her colleagues feeling responsible for her husband's death, which she feels responsible for, but also forgives herself for, but also kind of still feels responsible for, even though everyone did their best. There are not a lot of uh, non-doctor equivalents to this sort of situation. It's not like if you're an accountant and you mess up your spouse's taxes and, you know, then they die. 
It's not like I could make a really bad podcast and then my husband dies. And yet, I do get it. I have for sure felt guilty about circumstances that were totally out of my control. I have certainly apologized for things not in my control. And you have too. And if you've ever been in or adjacent to a tragic situation, you know that when something is nobody's fault, everyone just ends up feeling like it's their fault. And at some point, it is time for Megan to go back to the place where her husband died. Also known as, I mean, her office, her job, her place of employment. The emergency room. I was so nervous. It was like my first day of work all over again. I was afraid on so many different levels. I was afraid to go back and be a physician. Could I do it? I was afraid that I would have an emotional meltdown. So I remember walking through the doors, and uh, amazingly, my coworkers were smiling and giving me hugs, saying how glad they were to have me back. But in a lot of ways, work was easy. Like, That was something I knew how to do. As weird as it sounds, like, even walking past room six just didn't really phase me. Like, I would think, like, oh, Clark died in that room. But it wasn't like, it wasn't like that brought me any sort of real emotion. But it was so much harder for me to go back home. It was hard for me to go back to our favorite restaurant. But, like, work was a place where it was a routine. One day, back in her routine, Megan saw a new patient in room six, an older man with end-stage cancer. And Megan's job was to tell him that he had a choice. He could do a bunch of tests and procedures that may or may not help, or he could enter hospice and focus on his comfort until his death. So Megan had that conversation with this man and with his family, and then came the hard part. And he looked at me, and he looked at his family, and he said, I'm done. I I just want to be comfortable. I don't want to be in pain anymore, and I just want to be with my family. And in that moment, I remember being so jealous (laughs) of his family. Which is stupid and is, like, the most idiotic, like, thing to ever think about, you know, a family who's losing their husband and their father that you could, how could you possibly be jealous? But it it hit me. And I was jealous that I wasn't going to have the conversations that they were going to have, be able to have with their dad and their husband, that they were going to tell him that they loved him that they were going to be able to laugh one more time about a stupid story that happened in the past or listen to an amazing song that you'd listen to a thousand times, but listening to it one more time together. I was happy that I was able to 
give that patient that opportunity. But I also felt bad for feeling jealous of their awful situation. Here is a list of things in no particular order that I've been jealous of and then felt bad about. One, the friends who had healthy babies right after my miscarriage. Two, the people in the radiation waiting room who had, quote-unquote, good cancers. Three, when a woman's husband was diagnosed with stage three brain cancer, because I was like, well, stage three, that's pretty good. It's better than stage four. Four, old people holding hands because they got an entire life together and they're not dead yet. And five, babies because nothing has hurt them yet. I am telling you this in confidence. It does not leave this room because I still feel bad about it. And I'm telling you because if you didn't get what you wanted out of life, it's okay to kind of sometimes hold it against other people as long as you don't hold on to it for too long. And it's also okay and maybe a little uncomfortable just to spend a little time giving yourself what the world didn't give you. You are completely allowed to do that. So that's what I asked Megan to do. If you Mm -hmm. could do that with Clark, what would you say and what would that song be and what would that favorite memory that you guys laughed at be? I think we would be at home in our screened-in porch, and uh, he would sit in one chair, and I would sit in in another um, across from each other, and uh, we would have a beer, you know, after a long day's work, and uh, he would be playing probably his Van Morrison Pandora. Honestly, I don't know if we would talk. Like, just that moment seems so perfect. Um, but if I, I mean, obviously, if I had, if I got the chance to say something to him again, it would just be. Uh, to tell him how much I loved him. And how thankful I am that we had, you know, 14 years together, which, you know, even though we were only married for almost four of those years, every bit of those 14 years was lived to the fullest. And I know that he was a huge part of making that part of my life so wonderful. Yeah, it'd be that simple. This has been terrible. Thanks for asking. I'm Nora McInerney. Hans Buto is our senior producer. Hannah Meacock-Ross is our project manager. Muna Shehomar is our intern. Our intern used to be Jaka, but Jaka got a promotion to be my babysitter. Just kidding. Jaka went back to school. She abandoned us to get a degree. Sasha Aslanian and Muna 
listened to this episode and helped us make it better. So thank you for that. We are doing a live show, two live shows, here at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul, Minnesota, April 13th and April 14th. If you don't live in or around St. Paul, Minnesota, don't worry. We'll come to you another time. You can get tickets to these shows April 13th, April 14th at FitzgeraldTheater.org. Our theme music is by Joffrey Wilson, and we are a production of American Public Media, whose acronym is APM. 